Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast that looks at the films of action star Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going to take a look back at Dolph's third directorial effort. 2008's Missionary Man. In this modern-day Western, Lundgren plays Ryder, a mysterious drifter on a motorcycle who brings justice to a small town. This tribal council is in session. We've had a proposal for the building of a casino. From the Book of Samuel. If I don't deliver this casino, they're going to be pissed off. The Lord brings death. They drown somebody in the river, if you know what I mean. He brings down to the grave. You see, now I gotta wipe out the whole family. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. Greed killed my son. He raises the poor from the dust. Our ancestors always spoke of a man that would come from the north. He seats them with princes. Just keep on riding, mister. This ain't none of your business and has them inherit the throne of honor. Amen. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and coming back to join me once again is Mike Fury, author of Life of Action and its follow-up, Life of Action 2. Mike, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back and joining me. Hey, Sean. Thanks so much for having me back, man. Really appreciate it. Well, and yeah, I took a look at uh, your uh, at the, uh, volume two of uh, of Life of Action, and just like Volume One, uh, Life of Action Volume Two is another real labor of love. You should be very proud because this this book is pretty cool, man. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, when you set out on these these kinds of journeys, obviously you have a lot of passion in your heart and a lot of drive behind doing it. That's why I, you know, I I took on the the kind of <laughs> the hard mission of doing it all over again, having done the first book, but. Hopefully, you know, people seem to be digging it and it seems to be interesting. People are enjoying the new selection of interviews. So hopefully there's, you know, there's more of the same if you liked the format of the first book. But then at the same time, there's some new stuff to dig into. Well, and you got some, I mean, just like with the first one, you got some really solid, solid interviews for this next one. I mean, and I, I, I'm not going to run down the entire list, but I mean, sure. just looking through it, I mean, you had Frank Grillo. Uh, he, yeah. he, he provided some uh, insight to you. And then who I think is one of the uh, rising names in the martial arts world, uh, Amy Johnston, she's in the book as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's a really good selection of names. Quite a good, uh, quite a, for me, quite a lot of variety as well, which is what I like. So, you know, you've got um, maybe some of the, you know, younger up and coming people, the, you know, the old guard, the older generation people from all over the world as well. So, you know, the Western stunt people, filmmakers, or people from the East and Hong Kong and China and so on. And actually, um, you meant, um, one you didn't mention, which I, I thought, I thought you'd mentioned, which is quite, which was really cool to get was Vic Armstrong. Yes. Um, for, for the, for the second book. So again, with a nice linkage to, to Dolph, for obviously directing Joshua Tree and just his whole vast stunt career and all the movies he's worked on. So that was a really good, that was a really cool one and really interesting to talk to him. 
So I'm curious, I mean, out of all of the interviews, I mean, I know it's hard to pick uh, which which ones uh, really stood out to you. But I mean, I, I guess out of all the interviews that you got for the second go round, which ones did you find? Did you think to be were just really solid gets where you were extremely giddy? Were there any that uh, yeah. that that when you got you just got yeah. super excited? Like, oh, man, finally. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was excited about a lot because one of the challenges I had uh, with the first book especially is, of course, everyone you approach doesn't always, well, maybe they're not available to do it, or maybe they, um, their agents or managers, if you're going through people like this, they don't always want them to do it. I don't know, there's different different reasons going on. And I may not always know the full, you know, the full extent of the real reason. But it was kind of an opportunity. I got a lot of good people with the first book. But I also had people on my list, that I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to them next time if I do a second book, because at that point, I wasn't too sure. Um, but then for this book, I was able to go back to some of these people and then finally bring them on board. And this was people like, um, like Zoe Bell, Gareth Evans, you know, the director of The Raid, um, Vic Armstrong. I'm pretty sure he was on my list for the first book as well. And Tony Jaa and people like this. So there were a lot there. Um, and then the only challenge is when you actually get to speak to them, like a good example, somebody like Vic. Um, he's, you know, he's got such an amazing career, but he's also done his own book. So if anyone hasn't, um, read this especially Dolph fans actually it's worth checking out his full memoir his full autobiography that he did a few years ago um called the true adventures of the world's greatest stuntman but that talks you know in depth about his whole career and he's and, and directing joshua tree and, and you know all his all, all his movies as a stuntman but then you think with somebody like that he's he's kind of told his whole story so what am i going to bring to the table that's new that what you know so then i really have to try to distill some of the best stories or some of his best anecdotes but at the same time trying to get new information out of him so that was the challenge with somebody like him and then someone like zoe bell who i decided subsequently to have on the cover i just thought her interview was so good and so powerful and it really resonated with me that i was thinking in the back of my mind oh i'd really love to get her on the cover if we can if we can get the right images um and that's always the challenge there you think creatively what do i want on the cover what will work best but i think everyone brings something different to the table which is what hopefully makes it makes it a, a, an interesting read well, it is a striking cover. I mean, it, you you picked a very <laughs> a, yeah. a, a solid cover. And you yeah. know, with regard to uh, to Gareth Evans, I mean, yeah, that that was a really cool interview. Um, I, I I liked it. I enjoyed reading that one as well. You know, what's what's interesting about Gareth Evans? It like a lot of these uh, a lot of these actors and these you know uh, people of action, if you will, how he used his action background as a springboard into doing you know non action stuff. And, you know, because he obviously did The Raid and The Raid 2, but then he uh, branched out and he has the new movie um, that came out on Netflix about a year ago, um, Apostle, which yeah. uh, is is not so much action, but it is almost a horror film. So that's yeah. got to be really kind of cool to see as well as just how these these people who are making their mark in the action business are branching out into other genres as well, which I think is, you know, what, what any good actor likes to do. Yeah, sure. I mean, and it's particularly for him as a as a filmmaker, what's weird is he started out not wanting to do action. So he was more, he's by his own admission, he was more interested in art house and kind of arty movies. But then he, you know, he kind of un, un, like um, unknowingly at the time led himself down a path towards action, obviously made this huge movie with The Raid. Prior to that, he made a film called Merentel, which is really great as well with um, Eco Uwes. But then he did The Raid and The Raid 2. And you mentioned um, Apostle. Um, and he's actually just done a new TV show called Gangs of London, which is um, out now in the UK. And I think it's coming to the US this summer. So people can check that out then. But that's, I mean, that's more of like a gang. It's kind of more like a Godfather style gangster series. 
uh, more of a drama, but there's a lot of action in there, you know, so it's not primarily action, but it's got a lot of action scenes within the within the whole series but you know he's a really cool guy and i think a lot of these a lot of these people you know they have such broad tastes so of course they're going to be well known for their action work but then they want to you know they want to explore other areas as well and not not keep doing the same type of thing over and over again uh well you know i gotta say you are living the dream in a sense because i mean you were able to parlay your love of these uh of these these this genre and this style of filmmaking into not only making two books but getting to speak with you know hundreds upon hundreds of of people who've made their mark in the business so well done yeah for sure and i'd i'd, I'd like to give a give a shout out to um to, to my good friend ben from kung fu movie guide who i know you've spoken to on the yes. show as well we, we we've spoken about this and i've said to him you know like um, it's all about creating a platform where you get to talk to the people that you want to talk to and i think he's done a similar thing with his podcast and obviously you've you know you've done your own version of that too with this with you know with this show which is really interesting and and i've kind of done my own thing with it with the book so it's uh i think it's it's a cool opportunity if you get to talk to people who you know you're interested in speaking to anyway and then get something out of it whether that's a, a book a piece of written content a podcast etc that's that's a pretty cool thing well yeah, yeah exactly i've discovered by doing the podcast you know because as as you've seen i've been able to interview and and speak with uh quite a few uh fascinating people and i think in the yeah. end it comes down to the fact that it's uh you know it never hurts to ask you know what i mean and yeah. i think most of these individuals at least i found are pretty gracious in in allowing uh their time in uh you know granting it to you to have these conversations so yeah, for, for sure. And I think, to be honest, for me, there's, uh, it, I'm, I'm always happy to do these and it's really good, but there, there's a lot of, you know, just like movie talk podcasts or things like that. But I think when you have something that's got a nice, unique angle that makes it extra special, and I think for your show, Sean, I really love the, you know, diving in deep into every individual Dolph Lundgren movie. And of course, we're, we're huge fans of Dolph. So it's a really interesting prospect. So I, re and I really enjoyed it last time. So I was really happy to come back. Well, yeah, I mean, that. there you go. That, that's an excellent segue because we, uh, last time you were on, gosh, it was over two years ago, which is kind of hard wow. to believe, but we yeah. discussed um, a fairly early one of, uh, of Dolph's uh, Pentathlon. And, yeah. you know, it's it's really, uh, I, I went back and I uh, kind of checked out that episode and, you know, it's, it's really cool having you back for this one because I feel like these two films that we're talking about today, Pentathlon and Missionary Man, they, they're kind of a good, um, they have kind of a good symbiotic relationship in some ways. Yeah. Because I remember when we discussed Pentathlon, I asked you, well, you know, what else is coming up that, uh, that, you know, you'd like to come back for if you're willing. And I remember you said, well, I'm a big fan of Dolph's directing career when he started yeah. stepping behind the camera and directing. And so this particular film, this was his third time behind the, uh, behind the camera. So he was a little more comfortable than he was say in defender, but, uh, but yeah, I figured, you know, that this would be good. And also I think we kind of came upon the conclusion in our pentathlon discussion that you know, that production did not turn out the way he had hoped. And it certainly wasn't the film that he had signed on for um, yeah. in the pre-production phase. And so we kind of alluded to the fact that maybe it was productions like Pentathlon that made Dolph go into the directing realm, hence getting a film like Missionary Man. So, yeah, I think this is an excellent pairing. So thank you. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks so much, Sean. Well, and with regard to this film, uh, surprisingly, this film was not done by New Image. 
Um, New Image yeah. is the company that uh, has fronted quite a few of uh, Dolph's films. In fact, they did his last film, uh, The Mechanic. Um, but no, this was not New Image. This was actually Sony and mm-hmm. Andrew Stevens, uh, his production company that backed this one. Uh, thankfully, you know, when I saw it's funny because when I was watching it again and I saw Andrew Stevens name pop up, I was like, oh, God, because, you know, to be perfectly honest, um the previous productions that Dolph has worked on that had Andrew Stevens doing the producing duties, those just had an overall cheapness to them. And this one did not. I think a lot of that is due to the fact that Dolph is handling the directing duties and he's much more invested on this one. Yeah, sure. Can I ask a quick question, Sean, for for my own interest and background as well? You mentioned, um, you mentioned it being his third movie and you, you, you very well may be correct. But I noticed, you know, because he was he was an uncredited director on Diamond Dogs, which could right. potentially make fourth. Do you where just where do you see that in the kind of Dolph directing canon? Does Diamond Dogs not really count because maybe Dolph came in for a short a shorter period on the movie, whereas this Missionary Man is his you know third like official Dolph movie? Is that the kind of uh, line we're thinking? Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah, I guess you could say this is the third official one. But yeah, I remember sure. I. Yeah. I remember reading the exact same thing about Diamond Dogs that, you know, he came in and he pretty much handled most of the directing duties on that one, which I'll admit right now, I know it's not a favorite among the Dolph fans, but I personally, I kind of dig Diamond Dogs. I I think, and I haven't seen Diamond Dogs in a while, but I think I actually have a little more fun with Diamond Dogs than I did this one. This one's okay. Don't get me wrong, but this was not as good or as fun as I remembered it when I first saw it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I have to agree with you there. I mean, there's a lot, there's what, there's a lot I like about it. And I, and I'm sure we're going to kind of dig into all the different, uh, different aspects here. But I, you know, I'm a big Western fan myself. I love the old Westerns, the, the American Westerns and the spaghetti Westerns. And obviously the old trope of kind of a modern day Western with like bikers and that kind of theme. I, I actually really, I really like and I really appreciate that he tried to bring that style into one of his movies or, or tackle a more, I guess, a more classic filmmaking genre because it's not would you say it's not it's not really an all-out action film in the traditional Dolph sense oh no this film is essentially a remake of Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider I mean (laughs) this uh, I mean it's it's pretty obvious and on the nose which you know makes sense Dolph has always been I mean he's gone on the record of saying this he's always been a huge fan of uh, Clint Eastwood as are so many I mean you know it's it's funny because you and I you know we have our uh, affinity for you know, artists like Dolph Lundgren and Scott Atkins and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Well, of course, you know, Clint Eastwood was, you know, his hero or is yeah, his hero sure. for that matter. Yeah. Um, so I think this was his way of, you know, Dolph is an artist. He's an auteur. So, of course, like any artist, he's going to be taking some of his influences and kind of, you know, bringing those into into his fold. But I think this film was his way of paying homage to one of his heroes. Plus, you know, he's always wanted to do a Western. This was his attempt at that as well. But I was, I was watching this. I was saying, I was thinking to myself, okay, this is not just pale rider. There's a little bit of get Carter in there. Yeah. There's a little bit of walking tall and even Billy Jack. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very cool. What what I think is interesting about that, everything you just said, and again, viewing this maybe in context of, his his previous films especially it feels like i guess this is his first real personal project if we just you know just really skimming back quickly through the defender his first film which obviously he came i think he he stepped in uh, uh sydney joe fury was going to originally direct that wasn't he i think and um right. 
and then you had the mechanic which was um I, I guess it was it was you know obviously it's a good movie as well but there were certain caveats that you might know more about than me in terms of working with new image um you know including certain things or having to follow you know tick certain boxes with the production then diamond dogs we mentioned if he stepped in and this is the first time it's like with you mentioned with the, the Clint Eastwood influence or this, this stylistic approach. It's like, this is Dolph actually doing a movie that he wants to do. Right, right. Well, yeah. the story goes, um, in terms of the production, uh, basically Sony and the company Stage 6 wanted to work with Dolph once again immediately, um, especially after the success of The Russian Specialist or The Mechanic, mm -hmm. whichever whichever title yeah. you want to want to go by. Um, yeah. But basically, they saw the returns on that one, and they immediately wanted to uh, dip in the Dolph Lundgren uh, well once again. And yeah. so the story goes that they went to Dolph and they said, hey, we want to do another project with you. And so they agreed to doing this movie and once again giving Dolph uh, writing and directing duties because, you know, I would say <laughs> it's not even arguably, but I'd say, you know, the big thing, the big reason why the film The Mechanic works is because you have Dolph doing those. He came up with the story and also he's the director behind it as well. Yeah. So... So Sony came in and they uh, they they said, "Hey, we'll we'll give you this creative control. Here you go." Sadly, though, <laughs> they gave him maybe half the budget of a Russian Specialist, which at times, sadly, I mean, because you know th there are some things about this film that that I like, but looking at it, I mean, you can tell. I mean, it's pretty apparent that Dolph had some budgetary constrictions with this one, as well as a uh, shooting time. I I don't yeah. know what the exact shooting time was on this one compared to. Uh, Russian specialist, but with this one, you don't get any of those sweeping exterior shots that marvel at the scenery and the locale. I mean, you really don't get uh, a heck of a lot of that. Sure. I think um, it was maybe approximately two thirds the shooting time of the mechanic I read online. Um, okay. So this is like, you know, like 20 something days versus say like 30 something. So it was a bit of a it was a, a a faster shoot, which I guess you can kind of get the get the sense of. But then then again, it's it uses it feels like it uses kind of um, not necessarily in a bad way, but it's like relatively few locations. You know, there's a few you know in the like the local town or the home with the family where he's he stays a lot of the time, or the bars and the kind of interiors. So maybe you know it's it it was, it was definitely a, a I guess quite a fast paced shoot, but it feels like it kind of works within within this kind of small town setting. Well, going back to your, your first time viewing this film, yeah. if you can, Mike, um, yeah. your first time checking out Missionary Man, if you can go back that far, tell us about your initial exposure and what you thought of it then. Well, I mean, this is obviously, you know, this is a, um, this is of the, um, Dolph directing canon, as we know. And I think at this period of time, I was, I was catching up on e either making my way, um, chronologically when they were released, or maybe I was going back and catching up on a few that I hadn't seen. And I remember, you know, and, and it's not to say that I didn't like it this time around, but I remember seeing it first time. I think I was quite pleasantly surprised and maybe that's the benefit of being kind of struck out of nowhere. So maybe being used to a certain kind of late 90s, early 2000s action, very action-focused Dolph picture. He's doing basically like a, a, a motorcycle gang-style Western, um, much moodier, much less dialogue, cool shots of riding down the, you know, riding down the highway on, on, on his, on his chopper, that kind of thing. And a, a bit of a, a kind of a slower, more, more kind of contem, more of a, a, a contemplation orientated character and kind of a, a bit moodier and a bit slower paced. So I think I was quite struck by that. And I, I remember being really struck by the fact that it's shot virtually in black and white. 
um, which I yeah. really appreciated and really liked, obviously going, I mean, that's very uncommercial for anyone who knows anything about like film marketing and the way films are released. Um, so then it's not surprising that when you look at like the poster or the DVD artwork, it completely does not reflect what the film is. You've got like full kind of, um, full vibrant colors. Even the stills, I think on the back of the DVD are like full color, full popping orange explosions and, you know, crazy stuff happening. And when you watch the film, it's basically a black and white movie. So that's already different. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really impressed by the fact that he shot the film in black and white, um, which is obviously an artistic choice. Um, and he made it, you know, he made it a lot, a, a lot slower and wasn't afraid to kind of let the film breathe a bit more compared to, I guess, that, the heavy, heavy action that he would have been expected to produce at the time. And he was probably used to doing. I mean, did, did you feel that way, Sean? If, if you can remember back to when you saw it? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, uh, I agree with everything you said. Yeah. I, I kind of had the same, the same memories of it, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I, I'm kind of ashamed to say, but this is really, really only the second time that I viewed it. And the first time, obviously, was when I bought the DVD when it came out in 2008. Sure. And then it just kind of sat and I, I sadly um, never really went went back to it for for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I will say I do distinctly remember um, when this film came out. I remember Dolph was heavily invested in this one, especially in terms of its marketing. Yeah. I mean, I remember when this came out on DVD, Dolph was doing... Um, quite a few interviews and promotion around the time of its DVD release, which is fairly unheard of considering a direct-to-video film. You really don't see that a heck of a lot for a direct-to-video film for the writer and the director and the star to go out there really promoting it. But um, I think, you know, the fact that Dolph was once again handling those directing duties, he was, of course, much more invested in this one than, say, he was... Uh, last warrior or agent red or any of those so sure. um so that was that was really cool to see um i guess uh you you already kind of mentioned it but uh yeah the film uh was shot i guess uh from what i could read and what i dug up on the film uh the film was shot on super 16 uh -huh. but then there was a uh, uh a conversion that went wrong um that was going for that was converting it from hd to dvd so when the dvd was released the picture qualities and the colors do not match what was initially approved by uh, by Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. And, and obviously, if you look at the coloring of the film, I mean, that's that's the big thing that I think stands out is the coloring of the film. Um, it, it appears it kind of like uh, he did the same. He did something similar in um, in the mechanic where there are scenes of the mechanic that just look very um, sun drenched and faded. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, this film has the same kind of uh look to it you know but however i would i would argue and i i would go on in favor of the of the coloring sure i think that uh the faded kind of bleached out look of the film really in my opinion i think adds some style and flavor to the film that help it stand out because i will say right now this is not one of dolph's best films nor is it one of my favorites but i do think due to the coloring and the overall look of the film that is what helps it stand out as being uh, one of his most stylish of all of his films. Sure, sure. I mean, my main question I would have, and I don't think anyone here would know, we'd have to kind of go back in time to the to the picture grade, the edit, you know, the conversion, is how the how the film was meant to look. Or maybe if you saw it, I believe it was shown um, 
it got it got like a theatrical run at the Dallas International Film Festival with a print that was apparently approved by Dolph. So then theatrically, you know, people would have seen how it was meant to look. I mean, I I would imagine, I think it's meant to look this kind of, it's almost, it's not quite black and white. It looks kind of desaturated, like it's heavily desaturated, but there's a bit of color in there. I think, and I would I would believe that that's how it's supposed to look. But what what you notice is, unfortunately, there are certain scenes where, like the grade or the the level of darkness or the, you know just the lighting doesn't quite come out properly. And I would imagine maybe that that's the the down conversion gone wrong that they talk about when it was produced for DVD. That's maybe where it was let down. Um, unless unless it was a completely full color movie and then it's completely different, you know, <laughs> on DVD now. I, it, see, it seems to me like maybe it was supposed to be in that, you know, generally desaturated color, but the conversion has kind of has cheapened it or made it look not as good quality. Um, I don't know if, if anyone, maybe some of your listeners saw it at the Dallas International Film Festival and could think back, but um, it'll be interesting to know, you know, what the original version was, was supposed to be exactly and then how it compares. Well, you know, y- y- talking about how maybe it was supposed to be black and white if that's the angle that it, they were going for with it that actually makes a little bit of sense because as i'm watching it i mean <laughs> i don't know if you noticed this or not but Dolph looks to have bleached his hair a brighter blonde color in the film i yeah. don't know if that, that that stood out to you or not and so i'm kind of thinking okay if this was black and white then maybe that's why he bleached his hair because he really wanted um because, I mean, the, the, there's a few biblical allusions and analogies I was going to ask you about, but yeah. maybe that's kind of what he wanted by if, if this was going to be black and white. And maybe that's why he bleached his hair was because he really wanted to give his character a very angelic and ethereal presence, if yeah. you will. So, yeah. Well, it would have made the hair would have looked white, isn't it? It would have probably passed for white in a black and white movie exactly so that's what i'm saying yeah really nice white crown would have been quite cool <laughs> yeah. but you know i think in the end regardless if it is a black and white film or um if it has this uh, faded coloring to it that it ended up with i think in the end i think what what is pretty pretty commendable about not just the film but about what dolph did to it is he is adding uh culture and yeah. flavor once again to a direct-to-video film which is yeah. something that you really don't see a heck of a lot, especially coming out of Sony. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I loved Sony for what they did, especially in terms of, uh, I mean, they did a ton of action movies back in those, uh, yeah. those early 2000s and everything. But um, you, you really didn't see that kind, of, um, that kind of culture and that kind of style. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's very, it comes across as very different, and this is clearly a guy trying to make something different and unique and something that stands apart from probably the more generic style of films that remember at this point i think the other the other guys working and by the way i'm fans of you know the majority of these guys but like van damme or wesley snipes or steven seagal or these people at the time were, were making a lot of these films for sony um but i read online as well that this this one a missionary man actually grossed um seven million dollars in le- i think less than four weeks which at the time was way better than the competition in terms of you know with the van dams and the seagals and the other guys that were churning out similar movies so it maybe with that extra marketing support and dolph's visibility behind it it actually really helped amplify the movie i mean yeah i agree with you completely you know what's what's wild is because we mentioned this on a previous episode but it was really wild about this time was you know Dolph was uh, he was pretty much leading the direct to video market and then around the early to mid 2000s you had the guys who were theatrical 
like Van Damme and Seagal and Wesley Snipes, they were starting to kind of crowd that, uh, that direct to video turf, if you will. Yeah. And so you have a guy like Dolph who had already been there in that world. And he sees that these other guys who arguably you could say maybe were a little bigger, they're kind of coming in again with Sony and work in that same, that same playing field. Well, then what does Dolph do? Well, he has to diversify himself and he really has to make his films stand out. And so that's one of the things that I think is so remarkable about him is that, I mean, look, I, I liked Seagal at one time, but I feel yeah. like once he went into the world of direct to video, he had kind of just given up and, yeah. Yeah. you know, was just kind of collecting a paycheck. But then you have a guy like Dolph who's saying, yeah, you know what? Hey, this is going to be direct to video with a limited budget, sure. But um, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. Yeah, for sure. And bring in those again, those classic uh, cinematic influences, which I think some of these other movies they you know, and they're not all bad. I think somebody actually somebody else who who brought a lot to the table through a lot of different um, these these kind of well, all DTV movies, but the the Sony ones in particular was Van Damme actually um, gave a lot gave a lot of commitment. If you look back through that catalog. He did, you know, he's, he, he did some good stuff, but I think any, anyone who tries to bring in some more classic influences or tries to, yeah, as you say, elevate the material above what it should be, the films, generally speaking, do turn out to be a lot better. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we look at, if we look at the film, there, there's really not, I mean, the film is pretty simplistic in terms yeah. of its, uh, in terms of its story and its story beats, but Dolph plays the character Ryder, who is this mysterious drifter who rides on a Harley. And he comes riding into a small town to uh, to attend the funeral of a former Native American friend of his named JJ. Poor JJ. <laughs> yeah, but poor, poor JJ. <laughs> yeah. And we get to know immediately from the film. I was going to ask you about some of these things. Yeah. Uh, we find out immediately. Ryder has some uh, has some fun character quirks that many in the film notice. And, uh, make mention of multiple times. Yeah. Um, he's always reading from and citing Bible scripture. Yeah. Uh, he wears small reading glasses and the best, the best one is he drinks tequila straight yeah. up. Yeah. No lime, no salt. I mean, I actually thought it was kind of funny if I wanted to, uh, you could actually almost play a drinking game yourself. Anytime he takes a shot of tequila without <laughs> lime or salt. And anytime someone mentions it as well, you take a drink yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so. You'll be you'll be done by the end, <laughs> long before the end. So, uh, what do you think about uh, these character traits? Primarily, the whole uh, drinking of tequila angle. I mean, I, I'd like to think that Dolph was going for something here, and um, I kind of have a theory about that. But I'm just curious, what do you think he was uh, he was going for there? Um, I don't know. I mean. Tequila, I guess it's not the drink that you would maybe be a bit cliche. To, maybe he thought it was a bit cliche to have the kind of whiskey drinking, you know, cowboy or something like this. Go for something a bit more like tequila. And it's maybe quite a disarming trait. He's, he, he mingles and uh, rubs shoulders with a lot of very tough characters. So to have, as you, you know, you described the full image of his Bible, his reading glasses, and he's sipping his tequila, maybe doesn't quite, um, you know, doesn't quite let them in for the, the, the ass whooping they're about to get. Um, maybe it's a, a kind of a disarming trait, but I'm in, interested. What, what, what were your thoughts on that? Specifically the tequila as well. Well, I mean, and I haven't seen the film in a while, but um, are you familiar with, uh, did you ever see the Kevin Smith movie Dogma? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I looked quite a long time ago. Okay. So I was kind of wondering, there was a scene in Dogma, if you remember where um, Alan Rickman, who is this uh, angel, 
who comes down from the heavens and starts mingling with uh, with the earth people or whatever. And there's a scene where he comes into a bar and he is just slamming the tequila. Yeah. And so I'm kind of, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of wondering, is Dolph equating his character here with like an avenging angel? Like is Dolph, I mean, is the character of Ryder, because he is so mysterious and because he carries the Bible on him and everything like that, mm -hmm. is he in fact an angel of some kind? That That's kind of what I was wondering here. Yeah. It's a good. I like that. I think that would be a good, a good reference. Or it could just be that he wanted. Maybe he had had the opportunity to sip some tequila on set, and <laughs> a nice way to bring that into the production. That would have been a fun set to be to be on. I have to admit, people people just getting loaded between shots. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I I, I don't know um, if there's any more significance than that. But I like the the analogy that you just pointed out, and maybe a little homage to. To, to what even more of a homage or a, um, a, a greater emphasis on the that kind of biblical reference well i mean and the other thing i noticed that i kind of thought too is i mean we talked about how dolph was invested in this film but i almost think this could have been a character that dolph could have revisited for future installments i mean yeah. i'm curious do you think he was intending on this being a potential franchise um, I'm not sure entirely. I mean, I, I did read, and I don't know if this is this is true or not, but I read that um, Diamond Dogs had been intended to be kind of have spin-off stories. I'm not sure if any if you know about right. it, anyone else. And then subsequently, I think based on his experience with the, the the one movie they did make, that idea was scrapped, and he obviously moved on to other things. So if there was ever that idea in his mind, I mean, I haven't I haven't heard that anyway. But if there was ever an idea in his mind to make a character and go on kind of multiple adventures and outings this this, this one would work but i haven't heard um haven't heard this in relation to uh, missionary man but if that idea was ever kind of percolating in his in his head that you know making a story or making a character that could have kind of different chapters to their story um and that had continued into missionary man then that could have been um that that, that could have been applied here and i think actually that would work with this because if it's a if it's an idea of this this mysterious kind of lone ranger riding into different towns and you know applying justice to the local criminal element, uh, that that would that would work. So it would be a, it would have been an interesting idea to explore. How, how how do you think that that would have gone down, Sean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with regard to uh, with regard to his character in Diamond Dogs, that was kind of like a um, an Indiana Jones type adventurer, if you yeah. will. With regard to this character. I think this is Lundgren once again channeling Clint Eastwood, who yeah. uh, in many of his westerns, namely the uh, the Man with No Name trilogy, I, I think that that's kind of what Dolph was going for here, where he was given kind of this, uh, maybe, I mean, Ryder has a name, so he's not exactly the Man with No Name, but we're not given really any intel on his vigilante uh, hero character. Yeah. And so I'm I'm kind of wondering, assuming that this would have been sequelized and that a sequel did come out of this, perhaps this would have happened. Perhaps we would have gotten a little more background and a little more character development on the character of Ryder. All, but all we really know, <laughs> all we really know about the character of Ryder is that he is a loner who, again, carries this Bible with him. And he, I mean, they, they even outright say this. Some of the characters even say this, but... He just travels from town to town and writes wrongs. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, <laughs> and he even, I had to laugh because he even makes a comment later on in the film that his family consists of, quote unquote, his friends, his faith, and his bike. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. He's a man. He's a, he's a man who keeps little company. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, I, you, I, I mentioned, uh, the man with no name, but I almost, I, I kind of saw a little bit of parallels, maybe just in, in, in terms of his, uh, his overall look with the sunglasses and everything. But I kind of think maybe this was Lundgren's version of Cobra. You yeah. know what I mean? Like Stallone had Cobra. Yeah. Maybe this is. Yeah. But to be a, to be a true Cobra homage, you need him to cut a slice of pizza with a pair of scissors. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was such a cool scene. If yeah. anybody could do it. It was Stallone, but yeah, it was just awesome, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, but you know, looking at the film, uh, so pretty much the the main um, the main conflict, if you will, is a dirty proprietor by the name of Reno. Um, yeah. I, I love the name Reno. He's trying to bring a casino into the town again, kind of going along with those uh, that that walking tall uh, analogy that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. But Ryder is keen to the fact. And as is the viewer, I mean, we pretty much know right away that Reno is shady and he has something to do with J.J.'s death. Uh, J.J. supposedly drowned in a river, which is suspect to many, uh, especially J.J.'s family, including yeah. his sister and those these teenage kids that we see because J.J. was adamantly and publicly uh, opposing the casino. So um, we know that something is amiss. And again, kind of going along with the whole idea of Get Carter, right? When yeah. uh, the character of Jack Carter strolls in the town to... Uh, attend his brother's funeral, we know mm, something was wrong there. Sure, sure. And, you know, when we first see, uh, I guess it's one of the first real uh, action sequences of the film. Um, <laughs> and I, I hate comparing this to other films, but I mean, that, that that's what that's what we do. You know what I mean? Um, but one of the, the scenes that I have to uh, kind of grin at in the beginning, it's where we first see the character of Ryder as a real badass um, there's an uh, on deadly ground moment, as I refer to it, where Ryder comes to the rescue of a uh, drunken native, a drunken Native American who is being hassled by members of uh, Reno's crew. And so, of course, Ryder comes in, kicks all their asses. Um, this scene reminded me, I, I don't know if you've seen on deadly ground in a while, but there's a scene where uh, Seagal is in the uh, in the bar yeah, and some, yeah. uh, some some thugs are picking on that uh, that drunken Eskimo man. Yeah. And so. So Seagal uses the moment, not only to the, it's, it's actually a really funny scene because he uses the moment, not just to kick all their asses, but also to teach them a, a lesson yeah. about humility yeah. and respect. Yeah. He makes, if I remember rightly, he makes the guy like apologize and everything, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, oh, and I guess I can change what I am or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there's really no apology that comes out of it, but, um, from, from the guys, but, uh, but yeah, no, you, you pretty much know immediately, especially Lundgren. I mean, he, he's not too, his character isn't too concerned about, um, really making a scene. I mean, he will kick all their asses in broad daylight. Yeah. Uh, even, even the sheriff who comes around, we, the sheriff has a fairly prominent role. Even he knows he's like, Hey, you need to leave. You're, you know, <laughs> you're you're making a scene here, and you're uh, beating up a lot of the locals. I don't care for the locals here, but uh, might be a good idea if you leave. You yeah. know? One one thing I actually wish um, with with this movie, which we can come on to talking more about the cast, um, particularly the character of not not the sheriff, but the character of Jaff, who comes up a, a bit later. I think over an hour into the movie, because I think that's a really great character. This is when the the, the kind of the enemy biker element. Uh, becomes involved, uh, Sean, as you as you remember. Um, but I wish some of the stakes were a bit higher, like what you mentioned with mm -hmm. the sheriff being quite blasé, or the so the um, the Reno character. That that doesn't feel like there's a lot of threat. 
a lot of the time in my view but then once the bikers the enemy bikers become involved against Dolph's character it does feel like the stakes are a bit higher I'm not sure if you remember feeling that I, I did as well. I mean, because I, I've, and I've said this from the beginning, but I think some of Lundgren's best films are the films where he is up against a real nasty baddie or a yeah. real memorable bad guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why the mechanic works. Yeah. I mean, that, that bad dude in the mechanic is just so vile. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's just such a, such a, um, a, a great foil to Lundgren. So yeah, I mean, the character of Reno, we know that he is sleazy. I mean, one of the first scenes we see he's with these, uh, these prostitutes, right. That are, they're in his room and he's, you know, ogling at them. So we know immediately that he's nasty. And then when they bring in the biker guy, I actually kind of like it when they bring in the, uh, the biker dude, um, Joff as a, yeah. uh, as a foil to Lundgren, sure. but we really only see him for maybe two, maybe three scenes, yeah. if that even. And then, Lundgren quickly disposes of him. So, yeah, yeah uh, the the threat really isn't that huge, which, again, you already mentioned it, but if you're not going to have a, an imposing threat, well, then suddenly the stakes in the film are going to be limited, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it just feels like for this um, formidable presence that, uh, that Dolph creates in the, you know, he's you know, basically like a vigilante, an anti-hero who's writing wrongs. You know, he might not be a squeaky clean good guy, but he's kind of writing the, the ultimate wrongs that are taking place. But there's kind of, not to downplay the events in the middle of the film, but there doesn't seem to be that much bad stuff happening, aside from Dolph solving the, the mystery of what happened to this, uh, was it the JJ character earlier on in the movie. There's not, you know, sometimes these films, especially the, we talked about the Clint Eastwood movies or, you know, The Man With No Name, he kind of rolls into a town that's like being ravaged by horrible people. And it's really like, you know, the High Plains Drifter or these kinds of movies where it's really about um, saving the town. It doesn't like, there doesn't seem to be that. There's a few, like a few, a few kind of bullies in the town. It doesn't seem to be that mm -hmm. extreme. So I think with, I mean, obviously it's, it's kind of maybe a, a pointless thing to say looking back on a movie because it's like, oh, if they'd done this, then this would have happened. It, it, you know, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But with some higher stakes, just that, that, that fear factor elevated even slightly, I think it would have ha had um, maybe a bigger payoff in the end. Well, this is the thing. This is one of the things that I wrote down as well that, that always really kind of cracks me up. And I, I really noticed it on this one. The thing that, you know, I have to laugh at about these films if you think about it, any of these films about a corrupt small town, especially the ones that are done, let's face it, on a lower budget, is that you never really see many of the citizens. Yeah. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but you never really get to see any of the common folk uh, uh, people. And the streets are always desolate. You never see anyone on the streets. But what's, what's wild is you see more of the bad guys than you do the regular people, yeah. which for me, <laughs> for me kind of begs the question – once the bad guys are taken care of, is anyone even going to be left in this town? You know? Yeah, that's funny. And that's, I think it, it, it's the actions of the bad guys as well. So like, um, I don't want to keep bringing up obviously the Clint Eastwood examples, but there's a lot with the man with their name movies or high plains drifter or, um, you know, pal rider, or any of these films where, um, you know, people, people, people are kind of genuinely living in fear. Or maybe to, to the point that you made, you, you get like a few faces peering through the window, you know, the old kind of saloon, classic image of, you know, people scared and people not coming out. Um, but we see, you know, we see a lot of the, um, the, the family, we, we see a few families, well, the main family that Dolph, uh, Dolph stays with. But, um, I think with a bit of, a, a, a bit more fear and a bit more the, the threat of something's going to happen if, you know, 
if he doesn't leave or if something doesn't happen and then he heroically stays anyway and solves the problem, it might have um, made us a bit more invested in the outcome. But, you know, nonetheless, I think it was, it was cool that he, 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 he did, he did, you know, pay this kind of homage, like we're saying to the Power Rider story and character, but maybe with the limited budget, it allowed for less, less investment and shooting time and resources in, in, you know, implementing these ideas. What do you think was the uh, was the background between between the writer character and the JJ character? I mean, they kind of hint at it briefly that they might have served together. Yeah. But was that the extent of their relationship and their history? Because they never really lean into that at all, other than that one small conversation between him yeah. and um, JJ's sister. Yeah, I mean, I there's a few plot holes as well, which I or just things that aren't explained too much. And I actually want we can talk about some of the other other things in a minute. But I was wondering while watching it if they, you know, maybe some stuff was had been cut. Did they shoot more than we're seeing because that would have given a bit more context? Um, but yeah, I I found that maybe JJ, maybe JJ could have been as you said, maybe they served together, maybe JJ, maybe they they ran together once as part of like a gang, part of a crew. Um, you know, old friends, etc. So it's not it's not really given too much detail, but maybe with um with Dolph's uh, obsession with justice, we can assume this J you know JJ character was a good guy and didn't deserve to you know to have this happen to him, and now Dolph's going <laughs> to set it right. Well, I mean, and it's it's really not necessary to um to go through the film uh, scene by scene or beat yeah. by beat because it's like I said earlier, it's pretty simplistic and pretty straightforward. Once Ryder is in town and discovers that Reno was the one who is quote unquote controlling the town. Yeah. Um, he starts slowly bringing justice yeah. and his method of bringing justice is mainly by beating up members of Reno's crew. Yeah. Um, I personally, me personally, I loved the scene where he grabs the, the trash can lid yeah. and starts, <laughs> and starts whooping a few of their asses with the yeah, trash can yeah. lid. Um, me personally, as a lifelong fan of Captain America, Captain America has always been my, uh, my, my favorite. This is cool to see because I kind of looked at it as my hero playing my other hero. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And actually that's, I have to say this is just, you know, um, I'm a big fan of Dolph's action work as well as, I mean, action as an action performance as much as, you know, even some of his, his dramatic roles or his directing and so on. But I have to say for me personally, the action is one of the weakest elements in this film compared to, let's say, the the world creation for this you know this 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 classic old school western style story or the the way it's shot or the his character and his performance the actual fight scenes when you look at them they they i think they were done probably quite quickly and quite um cheaply in a sense and i read also that he didn't use any stunt doubles i don't know if that was for um you know maybe for 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 speed of the shoot or whether it's budget or maybe he just didn't need to maybe he felt because they're fairly short and sharp direct fight scenes he didn't you know it, it wasn't anything particularly flamboyant that he needed a double for um but then also that maybe lets it down that it's sometimes not quite as not, you know the action set pieces are not quite as extensive as they maybe could have been yeah yeah right well i mean i i, I kind of wonder i think that what dolph was going for i think he wanted the film to kind of be a slow burn yeah yeah if you will because i mean in the final act when uh when the writer character really starts uh you know, wrecking vengeance on yeah. <laughs> on everybody and setting up those uh, those traps throughout the town. I think that's when the film really comes alive and is a lot of fun. But I think that's that's kind of what Dolph wanted. Where he wanted he wanted it the the payoff to kind of be earned. Yeah, to where you kind sure. of had to really work for it a sure. little bit. But you know, the, the, the 
speaking of characters, you know, you already mentioned it, the uh, the sheriff of the town. I do like how in the in the later part of the movie, in the third act, I like how Ryder forms an alliance with the with the sheriff of the town. Yeah. Usually in these films, it's the law itself that is also corrupt. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so you you know the drifter is having to go up against the law. So I thought this was a nice touch. Um interestingly, uh the sheriff is played by friend of Dolph's and friend of the show James Chalk. Okay. So it's always cool to see yeah. familiar faces uh pop up again. Cool. Yeah, I really I like the character and I was I was going to say I, going back to the character of um of Jaff and I I really liked that villainous character. Um I liked, you know, the the, the kind of the culmination in that um, showdown. Although I wish maybe there could have been a bit more, and going and touching on the action side as well, which also we won't. I don't, we we can spoil it. We don't have to spoil it. The the final, um, you know, the final sort of showdown between the two guys. When Dolph starts bringing out the guns and using more gun action, not just the hand to hand or the the trash can lids, but using more gun action, there are some cool moments there within the within the shootouts and the and the, the those action beats. Well, yeah, because. Uh... Ryder doesn't use any weapons. I, yeah. Now that I think about it, he doesn't use a single uh, firearm until the end of the film. Yeah. I mean, he had the trash can lid and everything like that. So, again, I think he was kind of uh, trying to make uh, it, that be that, that kind of action to be earned yeah. in he, the end. You know what I mean? Me, I mean, you, you may remember that than me. Did he not shoot up the bar at one point? But, again, not at people. Oh, at people. right. He did yeah. shoot up the bar. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Like, no, like right. warning, like um, he's not firing at people. He's very much shooting up the bars to make everyone terrified. Well, and it wasn't just any bar. That was the bar that yeah. Reno owned. Bad guy bar. He yeah. wanted to. Not, not civilian. <laughs> <laughs> Going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, so, but you know, you, you already mentioned the character of, uh, of Joff. Yeah. Um, the character of Joff is played by, uh, John Enos the third. Yeah. And this character comes into the film. Uh, he's hired by Reno to we find out that Reno is basically he's in cahoots and he's also doing these drug deals as well of course in these yeah. movies i mean of course he's he's dabbling in drug dealing as well that that's kind of like an easy out to make your character bad right is he has these drug deals on the side and so basically the, the character comes in because billy the native american uh, a drug addict who Ryder rescued earlier in the film is witness to a murder that Reno committed. And so Reno hires this gang to kind of come in to find Billy and eliminate him basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, what I like just touching on why I I felt that um, the, uh, the Jaff character was a stronger adversary. Maybe could, it would have been nice to see him utilized a bit more is you see, as soon as he comes in, he's called by, uh, by Reno comes in. He, you know, he's not like a, a gun for hire or a henchman or something. He comes in and basically takes charge of the whole thing, doesn't it? If you remember him and his guys roll yeah. the town, like they should be the, they should almost be the dominating threat that was always there. They come into town. They pretty much, you know, slap, slap Reno around and tell him like he, you know, and, 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 um, proved him, demonstrate to him. He's got no power. He's got no control. We're going to do whatever we want. And then ultimately they end up having the, the kind of the show, the showdown with, uh, with, with Ryder. Well, and, one thing that that I thought was interesting that they don't really lean into is see, yeah, Reno he uh, alerts Joff that a mysterious biker with a Bible has been making trouble. Yeah, and Joff is immediately familiar with this figure. Apparently, they know each other from their respective pasts. Yeah, and Joff assumes that Ryder was dead. Yeah, but he's not. So 
I mean, what is the past and the linkage between these two characters? Because they know each other, yeah, but they never explain how they know each other or why they know each other, for that matter. Yeah. And then I thought it's actually it's quite surprisingly and uncharacteristically of Ryder, quite a harsh finale, if you remember. The final showdown between the two guys. Um, I mean, I guess we can say because people people will still want to, you know, people have either seen the movie or they want to check out the movie. But basically, um, in, in a shorter showdown than I guess we would have liked to see, it would have been nice to, to, to build it up a bit more. But the, the two guys are kind of attacking each other, shooting at each other. Um, Ryder wounds Jaff, and Jaff is like on his knees kind of looking up up to him and then they exchange a few words and um, Ryder point blank fires with a like a sawn off shotgun to the head. <laughs> no, it's a bit of a shock considering yeah. there really hasn't been much blood in the yeah. film prior. Yeah. Yet when there is, I mean, that scene is pretty harsh and pretty gory. And it, like you said, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's out of character for Ryder, yeah. but for him to be that, that ruthless at that point in the film, just point blank range and blast this dude's head off. It's like, whoa, I think like, yeah, what did this become? If I remember what, uh, what the exchange is, it's, and it's maybe I'm paraphrasing slightly. So we've just to, just to recap, we've had this background that maybe these guys know each other. Jaff knows who Ryder is, or they've had some dealings in the past or something. And then maybe they haven't seen each other up close, but then they have this exchange, this shootout. Jaff's wounded. He's down on the ground. He looks up to Ryder, and I think he said it's literally like he says, "It's you." And then Ryder shoots him in the face and says, "Yes, it's me." <laughs> so I know. So basically, yeah, we can pretty much. We I think we 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 can establish that there is a history there for the characters. There's something, and this is obviously you know you could also say for Ryder's character, the the kind of more honourable bringer of justice to be so callous and cold in this moment that the Jaff character is probably a, a really nasty guy, has done nasty things in the past, and this is the two guys finally catching up to each other and, you know, Ryder dispensing justice once and for all, but we just don't know the full extent of what's happened previously. So, it, And again, it might have been nice if we'd known a bit more about that. Uh, it would have been a, a, maybe a stronger payoff as well. But, you know, I mean, if you want to go along with my theory of Lundgren's character possibly being an angel, yeah. then I think I think that uh, that exchange could lend itself to that uh, to that idea as well because Joff assumes that this writer character is dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean he even he makes mention of that and then when he does look at Lundgren right before he dies, he says, It's really you. Yeah. <laughs> and Lundgren says, Yes, it's me. So that that's kinda how I wondered. I was thinking to myself, man, like is is that what Joff's going for here? Is that he's yeah. a uh, an avenging angel? And then just the way how he rides off into the sunset. I mean that's that's almost kind of angelic. Yeah. In a sense as well, right? What I would have, a little personal, this is just, again, a personal thing, so not to say right or wrong, but he, you know, there are some nice scenes with the family as well, if you remember Ryder sitting around the, the, the table with the family and this is J, with JJ's family and getting to know those, that backstory, those characters, and particularly forms kind of a bond with the, with the girl. I forget her name, but they're, you know, the teenage girl in the family. And they have some talks and some kind of quiet moments together. And then in the end, um, if I remember rightly, uh, Ryder, so Ryder does this, he kills Jaff and then he basically just gets on his bike and rides away. And I think we even see the girl kind of crying that he's leaving and he doesn't wave. He doesn't sort of, there's no moment of like <laughs> looking back and then there's like a mutual understanding and then he rides away or something. It's like he, he, he basically just pisses off at the end of the movie. It would have been nice if they'd had a little you know, maybe a, a, a last word. I, and I know at the same time, this is also maybe cliched. I'm going for the cliche. 
or if they'd had a conversation earlier in the movie that you know maybe says when this is over i'm going to have to go and then they but then they you know they have a hug or have a moment at that point in the movie and then after all is done he then rides away or something like that but there were, it felt like that was a little bit un, unfinished he you know they 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 built a bond throughout the course of the movie and then he just rides off at the end and that was that was it well doesn't he also sleep with jj's sister um, so like <laughs> I mean, they kind of hint at that as well. Yeah. So. It's like Ryder, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think in the end, what we're forgetting, Mike, is uh, Ryder's goal was not to come into this town and make friends. I mean, it was to come into this town, bring justice, and I think as he's riding away, I think what does he have a list in his Bible of towns that need saving? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm assuming he's he's riding off to another town that is uh, corrupt that also needs justice. Yeah. That's hopefully well stocked with tequila. <laughs> yeah. No salt, no lime. Oh, exactly. Like, you know, we 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 didn't mention it, but I just want to I just want to mention it real quick. I will say, um, looking at the final act before he does kill Joff, I do like some of the traps that he sets for the yeah. gang. And one thing that that I noticed, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but did you notice how Lundgren's character is not punched once? I mean, he really no one gets a punch on him, and that final. Uh, as he's walking through the town holding the uh, shotgun, it's almost like he's channeling the Terminator yeah. in a way. I thought that was kind of cool as well. But yeah, I mean, he is, I mean, not only is he a force to be reckoned with, but it seems like the bad dudes, they don't even want to try. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, no, excuse me. They do, they do try, but yeah. none of them get a punch off on him. Right. Or even yeah. a shot for that yeah. matter. I mean, I think that's, that's always the thing. It's nice. And like someone like Van Damme was always really good at that. He kind of puts himself through the ringer. Obviously, the ultimate example would be like Jackie Chan or somebody like that in terms of the action guys. Really, you know, being wounded, being hurt, you kind of feel that this guy's vulnerable. And then ultimately, through perseverance, they can come back. I guess, I mean, the thing is, Dolph has had that in the past in, in other movies. So maybe that's not the kind of character he was going for this time around. This is much more of an avenging angel literally as you say you know, maybe literally maybe metaphorically but kind of you know strolling through the town and just dispensing justice against these these people that can't do anything and kind of like with the line of dialogue where he says was it something like this knee is going to break that, that nose and there's nothing you can do about it and he <laughs> he just breezes through these guys and isn't even concerned that anything bad's going to happen to him so it's uh you know it's it's he, he's, he's a confident dude that was that scene was so on the nose i was yeah. thinking dolph you're a fan of Billy Jack, aren't you? Like, <laughs> yeah. No, he's so uh, we have to remember as well that you know, just the character aside, Dolph is a he's an imposing dude. I mean, he's what six foot five. He's going to be bigger and you know larger in stature than most people anyway. So to have this kind of this, you know, it's probably like un, even unwillingly, he's naturally you know him carrying a shotgun through the town. He looks like a Terminator, no, ma no matter what. Right. Sorry. Well, as we uh, as we look at the film, Mike, the moment has come. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, does Missionary Man get a recommend from you? Not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general. What do you think? I would have to say yes. I think it does because um, on a couple of different levels, as a Dolph movie, if you're a fan of Dolph, and I, I mean, I'm a fan of all these guys and even to, even their, their worst work or their less highly regarded work, which, by the way, this is not. I wouldn't say it wouldn't apply that to, to, to this Dolph movie. But, you know, I'm interested in everything. So if you're interested in the work of this particular artist, filmmaker and so on, I think it's worth checking out and worth seeing what they what they brought to the table, particularly 
going back to what we said in the beginning of the, the context of his his directorial work. So, you know, where he was having done The Defender or Russian Specialist, uh, Diamond Dogs, etc. And then obviously prior to Command Performance or Icarus, where this sits kind of in his canon. And then also just as a piece of film, as, as an example of an action, uh, I guess a typically what would be considered an action guy, you know, paying homage to Pale Rider and the Clint Eastwood, uh, you know, um, arc and kind of character type. Um, I think it's a it's, it's an interesting movie, and while it while it's flawed, and we've talked about some of those things, you know, I enjoyed it, and I think it's a good movie, and I respect what Dolph was 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 going for when he did this one. Yeah, you know, um, me personally, I, I would say out of all the films that Dolph directed, I would say this is probably my least favorite. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily make it bad. I mean, I, I still. I, I still enjoyed uh, watching it and still had a good time. And I, I think, you know, had anyone else directed this and Dolph would have just been a gun for hire as the lead, I don't think the film would have the uh, style yeah. and the overall look to it. Um, you know, we talked about it, but I think the, uh, the stylish uh, coloring of the film, the fun third act, and some interesting choices in terms of his character, I think that is in my opinion, what saves this yeah. in the end. But other than those other than those little aspects, there's really nothing a whole lot original to the proceedings. I mean, it's a story that's been told before um, dozens of times. But, you know, th th that, that this is what Dolph is doing. Again, he is an auteur. He is an artist. So he is taking those influences that inspired him in crafting a story in a film that he would have liked to see, I would like to think, yeah. um, when when he was younger. Uh, like I said earlier, this is, this is Dolph's version of Pale Rider, Walking Tall, Billy Jack. He crafted for himself a fun character that I think could have been fleshed out a little bit more had there been another film. So I would say it does get a light recommend from me yeah. in, in terms of a Dolph film, but I would say it's not on the same level as his previous directorial effort, The Mechanic. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So, yeah, but Mike, again, I had a ton of fun. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on this one and, and, <laughs> and analyzing this film with me. I, I know that this is, uh, uh, not, not the most, um, commercial film, I guess we could say, but I do appreciate you, uh, agreeing to come on with me and chat this, uh, small little independent film. Um, is there anything else that you're working on or anything else that you want to give a, a shout out to before I let you go? Yeah. No, just wanted to, to, follow up on what you just said sean obviously i'm always happy to always happy to talk to you and you're obviously a good guy and i, lo I love the show i'm a fan of the show anyway i listen to the other episodes you know even when i'm not on it I, I actually i can't listen to my own episodes i listen to other people's but um you know i'm obviously being a fan of Dolph and being a fan of this genre as well as much as anything you know i don't really care about if stuff's commercial or not it's i'm, I'm interested in the movie or the the artist that worked on it so for me, that's, that's the, you know, that's, that's what entices me. So obviously I'm, I'm very grateful to be asked back again. Um, following, uh, when we talked about pentathlon, which was, which was good fun. Um, and for me, what I'm working on next, I'm not too sure. I've got a few things kind of on the back burner that I, I don't want to say too much about right now, but because, um, it's only really, I think, a few weeks or maybe a month or so since Life of Action 2, uh, has been released. Um, I'm just really working on promoting that and getting that out there. Um, obviously we're in this crazy lockdown period as well, which makes things, you know, more challenging for, for a lot of people and in the film business and out of the film business. But I'm hoping, you know, people will continue to dig the book and check it out. And, um, you know, hopefully there'll be, there'll be more to come. Well, I guess the positive with the, uh, the, the quarantine, it was able to make this, uh, this conversation happen, yeah. uh, pretty, <laughs> we were able to expedite it pretty quickly. Yeah. So for sure. And yeah, I think that that's the key thing, you know, is just, 
I, you know, I obviously, I want everyone just to, I'm saying to everyone, I want everyone to, you know, stay safe, stay home. We, you know, it's a good opportunity for all of us, I think, to kind of do, you know, like with this podcast, do the things that we want to do, catch up on movies, watch mm-hmm. more Dolph movies, and just hopefully get, get back to business when we can. But in the meantime, just kind of, you know, be, be, be as productive as we can and, uh, you know, look out for each other. I think that's, that's the best thing to do right now. Yeah. Well, Mike, it has, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, it's always cool to talk to you and, you know, especially a, a, another fan, um, especially a collector of physical media. I remember yeah. last time we were speaking, we, we geeked out and showed each other our collections. Yeah. So, um, it, it's, it's been a, a pleasure, um, on that front, uh, you know, getting to, you know, foster another friendship here, but, um, I really do appreciate it. Um, I'm going to include a link in the show notes, uh, to where people can, can pick up your uh, book. And when we get done here, I think, uh, I'm going to get a physical copy of it myself as well, but I do appreciate it. And, uh, I wish you nothing but the best and please stay safe. Okay. Thanks so much, Sean. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. All right. Uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.